2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm your host, Daniel Shea, and this is another episode of the Focus All We Mean, an ongoing discussion and debate about how we mean and why. The premise of the podcast is that meaning production and the products of meaning making are pretty much everything there is for us humans. As a species, we do not encounter a thought or a thing, not even ourselves, without us going and making meaning with it or adding meaning to it. Meaning is how we act as much as it is why we do. And so the subject matter of this focus reaches into absolutely every quarter of human life, our daily routines, our career paths, our bids to acquire new knowledge, our attempts at connecting with or at disconnecting from one another. The format of All We Mean is simple. I open every episode by stating plainly the topic, and then my guests take up this topic to discuss and debate it in the hope that we all might learn something more about meaning. The topic of today's episode is What Decision Means. And for that, I'm going to read an abridged version of the discussion section of a paper, Mink et al. Everybody's got ML. Tell me what else you have, practitioners' perceptions of ML based security tools and explanations at the IEEE Symposium on Security and Privacy from last year. But first, to my guests, I welcome back Bill Cope and Mary Galanzis, both professors at the University of Illinois. And for today's program, I welcome to Gang Wang, assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science also at the University of Illinois. So, hi, everyone. Welcome to All We Me.
3: <laughs> Hello. Lovely to do
2: Great to be there. <laughs> yes, great to have everyone here today. Um, another slightly larger discussion round um, to get us back to our topic, what decision means. To get the talk, talk started, I'm going to read from the paper which I just mentioned, which, Gung you yourself, our last author on, the short title, Everybody's got ML, meaning machine learning, of course. The discussion of this paper focuses on three recommendations, each in line with a main finding of the study. And the contrast throughout is between ML on the one hand and rule-based methods on the other in industry practice. The excerpt that I'm about to read is just one of those points of contrast and just one of the findings of the study. One of our main findings is that explanations need to be tailored to specific security use cases and requirements that differ from generic ML explanations. Specifically, explanation methods are needed by practitioners not only to understand the classification model itself, for example, verifying correctness, this is goal one, but also to provide context for understanding the detected security event, for example, to inform actions to be taken. This is goal two. Existing research has been primarily focused on developing explanation techniques for goal one, that is understand the model. While the ML capability to support goal two, inform actions to be taken during the security event has not been sufficiently explored. Further, participants in our study expressed concerns regarding the utility of ML tools when integrated into their established workflows, for example, conflicting with the Security Operations Center playbook procedures. And they suggested additional information and interaction needs which go unsupported by current explanations. Taken together, these results indicate a divide between the general ML human-computer interaction academic perspective which is to improve goal one, and security practitioner perspectives of explanation needs, both goal one and goal two, with a focus on integration with existing workflows. Therefore, to better align explanation development to practitioner needs, our recommendation is that researchers should proactively engage target users, for example, security analysts, when designing explanation methods for security tasks the evaluation of explanation methods should consider users' downstream tasks and evaluate whether the explanation can save users time end-to-end. Our work provides an initial step toward this goal, synthesizing several practitioner explanation needs. First, an explanation scheme can provide helpful context for the current event by identifying and highlighting similarities with previously occurred. excuse me, with previously occurring that is known events or explain how similar previous events were handled. Second, it is desirable that explanation schemes provide actionable information to support further actions for analysts. For example, decide which IP port to block, which server to shut down third, The presentation and interface of explanation schemes should be customized to the local environment and support aggregation of events, for example, using time-bound graphical or natural language interfaces. And lastly, fourth, it is desirable that the explanation engine should be interacted with and support queries from analysts. Future work should build on this, leveraging existing expert interface design literature as well as formative and summative interface assessments with practitioners. And that's the end quote. So maybe to give the floor first to you, Gang, to help us more fully appreciate how human decision making or at least what you've been able to glean from this last study that I'm citing from here with industry practitioners, how humans want to base their decision-making on ML as perhaps opposed to how they want to base their decision-making on things that are not, let's say, ML.
1: Yeah, so uh, this is a great question. Uh, when, we, uh, inter- viewing, uh, when we were interviewing with uh, security practitioners uh, who deal with security threats on a day-to-day basis uh the uh articulate the importance of having explanation behind alerts or warnings to important. uh meaning that when the detection tools either they are powered by machine learning or non-machine learning methods the hope to get to the reasoning of why this is uh, malicious and why they need to prioritize this particular alert or event. Uh, often cases, uh, machine learning is, uh, not very, uh, uh, um, uh, suitable to generate those, uh, explanations, uh, by default. So therefore you need to be, uh, you, there need some extra efforts to extract those explanations out. The reason being machine learning, uh, learn, uh, a sort of behavior of a system, uh, or a network based on statistical models. Uh, These models aggregate a large amount of data to find patterns that is difficult to be uh, described using rules or descriptive languages. Uh, That's kind of the uh, powerful side of machine learning. On the other hand, uh, this nature uh, make the explanation difficult. Uh, That's why a lot of the practitioners are expressing the need to improve the explainability of machine learning tools,
2: Bill or Mary, would you like to follow up there on uh, on this idea of explanation in in ML?
3: Yes, okay, but I want to go just go a bit broader because I've been thinking while uh, our Gang was talking about two things. Uh, over Christmas, we went to um, Kansas City and went and visited Harry Truman's uh, library. And at the bottom of the library was a place called uh, the Decision Centre, which brought students students together to make decisions. However, when you walked through the library um, and through the exhibition, you noticed that all the momentous decisions that Harry Truman made, whether it was Korea or the bomb or, uh, you know, or Israel, right? How many people gave different opinions and until today dispute uh, the, uh, the outcome of those decisions. So decisions and making money is a very, very complex issue, uh, even whether it's human or machine made. So I think that's the first point I wanted to make. The second point was some decades ago when I was at James Cook University, one of my doctoral students who was in the military at the time wanted to do a thesis on um, how you could use te- the new technology uh, to make decisions in wartime, right? You know, because you need just in time information. I think all the things you say, gang, we agree with completely. What's the context? What's the use case, et cetera? And how do you get that just in time? And certainly after that time when I met this student, we had a whole bunch of wars, American wars, which are still going on, which are becoming more and more dependent on uh, trying to guess what we did in the past, what what's needed now, what the context is, what the logistics are, what we can get there. And they're playing such a really powerful role. Uh, so I think we have problems both with the mach- machine learning end and the human learning end, and I think we have addressed those complexities very nicely. Uh, and what still needs to be done in order to be make decision making uh, effective uh, for all the stakeholders or for those that m- might be more meaningful than
0: others.
1: Yeah, these are excellent points. Uh, I don't know if Bill wants to add anything. Further.
0: Yeah. Oh yes, I'll let you respond first. Yes, I have got a few things I'd like to add as well. But um, yeah, 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 you, you, you go first, gang. Uh, yeah, so I, I think
1: uh, you know, thank you, Mary. So you know, uh, bringing a lot of these points to the much higher level really open up the context, right? Um, decision making in general uh, is very complex tasks, in um, particularly for machine learning. Uh, knowing that machine learning models are usually trained on data that have clear patterns. Uh, while the current of research are trying to push the machine learning to perform more reasoning oriented tasks, but at the end of the day, the state of the arts of the machine learning model are still heavily relying on uh, extracting statistical patterns from historical data. Uh, this really means is that machine learning may be able to make high fidelity, high reliability decisions uh, on context where they were heavily trained on. Uh, this casts the question about whether they can reliably make decisions, especially high-stake decisions, uh, for context that is slightly different from what they're training for. Um, so when you mentioned about the example of a wartime, uh, in a, sorry, in near real-time decision-making, uh, a very important question is, can machine learning accurately uh, assess whether this kind of decision making is within their training scope, uh, and whether they are making decisions out of uh, their training, uh, uh, you know, capability. Now, uh, you know, of course, this kind of uh, decision making made out of the training context can uh, lead to uh, really kind of disastrous consequences. Uh, I think, especially talking about a wartime where. Uh, Lessy drones these days uh, are equipped with uh, complicated machine learning models to process the division data uh, to understanding their surrounding environments and to make decisions in uh, real time of course with a uh, operator but a lot of the decisions are semi-automatic uh, so definitely um, high stake decisions and uh, so a lot of Uh, A lot of um, uh, problems are still open problems, and yet we start to see uh, these kind of machine learning
2: models are shipping in production. And and Uh, perhaps to throw the monkey wrench into that, which is your particular area of expertise, uh, Gang, the security issue. I mean, if we were dealing with a conflict situation, then I think we would probably also be dealing with heightened worry or concern about uh, the security of the particular model that was making these decisions.
3: And also hackers, <laughs> because uh, I was listening recently to some people from in the government saying that the hacking that's going on, particularly Chinese hacking, I gather, which is five to one hackers to American hackers is 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 so prolific. And they're copying, uh, uh, um, you know, all those algorithms, they're understanding the meaning making uh, that is being produced through machine learning. So there's a war going on there too. It's not as though it's uh, clean and controllable by any particular state.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the uh, uh, <clears throat> so the hacking can go uh, from both of the software layer that we're familiar with uh, nowadays of exploitation of the machine learning algorithm as well. Uh, so the whole pipeline end to end. Uh, is uh, definitely demanding a higher level of scrutiny on uh, the security analysis. Uh, this is a, still a very large open challenge uh, for the software and a machine learning stack these days.
0: One of the questions I'd like to ask you really is, um, is this an intrinsic problem with machine learning as an information system? So the way I understand it is, uh, you know, Neural nets, for example, involve these levels of combination, which is a convolution, I'm sorry, which is just statistics on statistics, on statistics um, calculation on calculation on calculation. So they start with a set of empirical data in the real world. They rework them, rework them, rework them, and they come back out again with something which is intelligible to humans. And, you know, in the very beginning of your paper, you mentioned this notion of a black box. Um, so, to some extent, technologies are all black boxes. You know, our car goes wrong and we take it to the mechanic, and the mechanic can't quite work out what's wrong, but they do a bit of fiddling, they change this, they change that, and somehow or other it begins working. So, in a sense, all technologies are slightly mysterious, but is there something um, peculiarly mysterious about these statistics? Um, Based technologies, I might say a little footnote by the way, just just out of curiosity. It's a University of Illinois history footnote. The 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 metaphor of the black right box was actually invented by a man whose name was uh, Ross Ashby, who was here working at cybernetics um, in the 1950s at the University of Illinois. But anyhow, that's a piece of historical trivia. I always <laughs> like, always like this kind of stuff. But the real question is, ah, uh, for me is, ah, uh, is machine learning more of a black box than other technologies, given the fact that all technologies are sometimes somewhat mysterious?
1: That's a great question, Bill. Um, so I often try to compare uh, the machine learning uh, uh, models and algorithms to some traditional technologies like just plain software that are running in our cars, in our airplanes, in our computers, right? Um, so to some extent, uh, there were black boxes, right? And my, my kind of the simplified view of this black box is that there's something going on, uh, inside, but from the outside perspective, all you have is some inputs and outputs, right? So you, uh, throw something in the box and something come out, right? Like machine learning models, uh, the very simple example would be sort of image classifier. You put an image in the box and, um, the box spit out some, you know, uh, decisions or classification results, like, oh, this image contains a dog, that image contains a dolphin, that's the output. So, but how, how this kind of box, you know, transform this input information to the output is sort of largely unknown. This is how I interpret, you know, you know, a a black box. Uh, Very similarly to traditional software, uh, you know, like when you drive a car, uh, your sort of instruction is turn left. You steer the wheel a little bit, the computer read the inputs, and then the whole, um, you know, a car reacted to kind of steer the wheel to the left. That's the, the the output. I think that there's a kind of a key difference between machine learning models and traditional software is that if you open up the black box and, uh, you know, look at the, you know, traditional software, uh, the code line by line, has a clear sort of logic, uh, you know, behind that you can trace, and you know, you can, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's a you know decades of work studying how do you debug or finding uh, problems within these lines of logic uh, to understand. Oh, you miss a corner cases because you know the simpler example of the logic is that um, if the you know if the color is blue, uh, then we. Tell the output is a, is a sky, uh, or if the color is green, then we see it is a piece of grass. So it's a deterministic. It's written with sort of a logical sequences, uh, so you can debug it more easily. You can figure out oh this if then that misses some kind of a corner cases. I can I can fix it by adding a claw. But for machine learning, as you mentioned, Bill, there were kind of stacks of you know neural network structure that do calculations uh, on a sort of data uh, it is really difficult to match that decision process with our you know kind of uh, human brain's reasoning process right and that's kind of differences make it really difficult to understand how this you know thousands of pixels are calculated calculated over multiple layers, at the end, there was some kind of decision layer that says uh, that's a piece of uh, grassland or that's a, that's a sky. Because it's not just simply they were, you know, understand, oh, this, um, this part of the image contains a large blue pack of color and there was some kind of reasoning on top of it. A lot of this kind of decisions were made based on the fact that there's kind of thousands and thousands of pixel values are clustered in that way and they have seen this kind of patterns that are mapped to a sky before or uh, a, a particular type of animal before, then they kind of make that decision based on you know, what he said, uh, what he observed in the data. So uh, this is kind of the black box nature of machine learning is that their reasoning process is a lot of this kind of you know, statistical model based uh, and is not very deterministic. Sometimes you tweak a little things here and there, the decisions can change a lot, and that become a problem. Uh, so debugging a machine learning model is inherently more difficult, um,
2: and therefore, so the explanation
1: aspect is even more difficult to extract.
2: Yeah, I mean, explanation is another one of these things which obviously comes up prominently in the in the paper that I was uh, citing from. But but words that I hear coming up again and again, what you are saying there, Gang, and I and I know from the people that I work with is is classification instead of so much decision. And maybe to bring in some of the work that uh, Mary and and, and Bill do, they they talk about uh, concepts and entities, for example. So, I mean, if you've got a concept, then it's it's, it's necessarily plural, right? You'd say dog, not this dog, but we know that this is a dog. It belongs to that class, so therefore classification. And the model makes such and such a decision. But there seems to be something inherently different in the whole idea of reasoning, which you've been talking about, which is also available in lines of code, apparently, right? I mean, we know of a syntax, we know of, as, as you gave the example, right? If if green, then, then grass, for example. So I mean, this is something that, that is logically understandable. But in the classification done by ML models, we seem to be lacking that either in reality or at least in our understanding of an ML model's reality. Um, Yeah, so I I
1: think that's um, that's uh, that's kind of the uh, state of the art that uh, people try to push towards to adding this kind of logic or reasoning capability to the current ML. Uh, However, this process is very difficult as uh, a lot of the machine learnings we see these days, especially deep neural networks that have really good performance, was trained on a lot of data. By definition, they were not built to capture those kind of logical sequences within the data. Uh, They're purely driven by this final goal, uh, which is getting high classification results, right? Uh, So these days, people try to bring the logic on top of it and to see if it make more kind of reliable decision making. Um, Just get get you know go to the example of dogs, and I really like this idea of concept. Um, so, for example, machine learning. Let's try to classify a dog. We uh, basically take the whole image as a whole and try to, uh, as a, you know, Bill says, convolute layers and of layers of the pixel combinations to infer you know, a final decision. Um, recently, people start to see if they have, you know, uh, unknowingly or un- intentionally. Capture a certain concept within this image, you know, prosecution, uh, process. For example, um, if if a human will look at a dog picture, um, you know, they probably capture a few concepts related to, you know, uh, explainable parts. Like there's there's ears, uh, there's uh, eyes, there's nose of the dog, and there's a body shape. There's a you know, fur and tails. So the the kind of uh, you know, process those kind of concepts first, and then using this concept to make a holistic decision. Okay, everything combined together, these things will look like a dog's body parts. Um, machine learning does not do this intentionally, so people try to see if they have intentionally capture some of the body areas and make a decision, right? Uh, and if we, you know, if we can steer the machine learning to do that intentionally to, uh, you know, treat those models as the sensors to capture those concepts. And then there is a kind of a logical connected decision-making layer. Uh, those kind of decision making is really different from a lot of the models we see these days and it potentially could it be more reliable and trackable. Uh, so I think that's kind of the, what people has been looking into. Um, and, but you know, it's, it's going to be pretty different from a lot of the models we see these days.
0: So um, I was just going to say uh, one of the ways in which we think of this problem is um, is around the distinction between um, a concept and an instance. So Daniel began to mention this idea. So we've got a particular dog out here, um, uh, which might be called Fido, um, but what we're all the time doing in the world and we need to do as humans is categorize things, we need to classify things. So there's a classification problem here. Um, So what we're asking the machine to do is to define this creature that's within its vision in a photograph or something or other um, as a dog. But one of the the important things is that we do that through the mediation of language, the classification thing. So in other words, there's no way the machine can ever have a concept of dog and in a sense, theoretically, can never explain itself because it's humans who have labelled dogs as dogs, right? Um, purposes of the machine. So that means a very big part of the the the, the work that needs to be done, which I think is often neglected in these um, uh, environments, is um, um, is to um, build good classification schemes um, um, as well. So, for example. Um, I was reading recently about the, um, the development of ImageNet, um, where I don't think they had a great classification scheme. That what they did is they just took a whole lot of words out of WordNet. They eliminated all the verbs, they eliminated all the adjectives, they left um, nouns. But, you know, the, um, so, you know, my feeling is that one of the things we need to do is firstly recognize the machines don't have any concept of anything that's happening in there. Um, And this is a point you're making about the black box. But secondly, um, it means there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the area of ontologies, which is what are the classification systems in the world which do rigorously describe the world in ways which are useful for us? Um, Medicine is a very good example where there are very, very strong classification schemes. Um, So, you know, a general kind of theoretical problem then is how does one... um, rely less on the neural nets. Yes, they're going to do their work, but how does one focus more theoretical attention um, and more classific- attention on classification schemes as well? Um, and just to
3: add something, again, you
0: you were talking about um, trying to understand
3: statistical models and work with that. But what we've been proposing in our work is how do you understand the grammar involved uh, in the meaning?
0: of the machine oh let me say grammar yeah what we mean by grammar is um fido is a proper noun because that's that's our dog it's called fido right but you know a hypothetical dog whereas um a dog is a common noun so you know and there are analogs by the way in the in the visual world Uh, an icon a dog which says no dogs here um is a common noun Uh, Whereas a photograph of Fido is a proper noun. So in other words, what we've got is that, you know, what we're talking about is a kind of a a grammar. Not traditional grammar. Which is bigger than language. (laughs) Um, So that's one of the things we've been working on, which which is how does one describe the world uh, in a way which is useful and therefore might be useful for AI as well. Yes. (laughs) Mm. I
1: I think I I wanted to get a few clarifications on this grammar notion. Um, So... I'm wondering, uh, you know, in addition to describing uh, de- describing a particular uh, type of animal or a particular instance of animal, uh, it, are, are you talking about a sort of a generic language that helped to better communicate uh, between human and this algorithm?
0: Because, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Let me be clearer than we are in everyday natural language. So one of the things is the Bobbino, doing computer environments is build data models which have to be more rigorous. Um, so for example, you know, I, I know that in the cybersecurity domain there's there are various classification schemes used by NIST and whatever, which are ways of describing types of incidents, describing types of capacities and so on. So in other words, what we do in specialist domains is we build schemes which are more much more rigorous than natural language can be and which are domain specific. Right. So um uh, you know, and I think a lot of work needs to be done on that what we what we rely on too much um I mean look the algorithms um and the neural nets and the stats are all incredibly powerful and you know amazing developments that have happened um, in the realm of technology but you know our argument really is um uh, do we leverage the rigorous classification schemes that have been made outside of AI do we leverage them adequately
1: Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, so, this remind me about the discussion of uh, um, uh, that having uh, the AI to do a sort of you know general purpose tasks uh, by incorporating uh, outside context, and how do you properly you know incorporate those contexts uh, to the AI system uh, to uh, to en- you know en- enhance its capability, right? Uh, I don't know if this, is, if this is a kind of the perfect example, uh, you know, one of the sort of exciting development of uh, large language models like Chat GPT is that uh, people start to build in their capability to interact with the internet uh, in a real time. Uh, in a sense that now that you can uh, you know, uh, you know, tell uh, the AI model to visit a website, to learn the information on the fly, and be able to interact with you with the appropriate you features learned from that particular website. Uh, so as a copyright example, you can ask them to read a piece of news and then provide you a summary, uh, uh, in a, sort of in a real time, as a sort of personal reading assistant. Uh, I think of this capability of having an AI model and not only kind of interact with users based on the sort of training context uh, to you know, branch out to the outside of the world to incorporate the context in the real time is sort of interesting development. Um, uh, but I'm, you know, going back to your original comments. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, this kind of um, discussion of uh, how um, this kind of uh, common language uh, that allow AI to do so is is something you're referring to, uh, or uh, I sort of misinterpret that that idea.
0: Yes, no, I actually. We we kind of mean something different from that because what what happens is the LLMs take a mishmash of um, of material they can find on the internet and they resynthesize it, but it's actually um, they they don't they don't think in conceptual terms they don't think in theoretical terms they just think in terms of um, uh, you know the next word essentially in terms of what what what's the probability of the next word being there and vectors which make words a bit more precisely defined in relation to the words that sit around them, right? But what they don't do, and this is a very good example, they don't have any conceptual schemas or any theoretical screeners behind them at all, except what they accidentally find embedded in, in natural language. So one of our arguments is that wouldn't they be much more powerful if we were able to overlay them with Formalized ontologies, for example, in legal domains, great example where um, the International Classification of Disease. There are about five big medical ontologies which are enormous and exhaustive, and which are definitive. And if you're making an insurance claim, you know, non-negotiable. You know what I mean? They're they kind of which absolutely um, ground the, the the business of medicine. So when I go to an LLM and I ask a medical example, all it's doing is just a mishmash of words. It isn't thinking with the systematic classificatory rigor that ontologies have. Um, now, what we might do is we might fine-tune the LLM by putting in stuff from Biomed Central, you know, which is a whole pile of articles. But even those journal articles, it's that the AI is not animal analysing those in a systematic classificatory kind of way. It's simply um, inferring uh, stuff from the likely next word. So in other words, you know, I, th- I think these LLMs could be much more powerful if we worked on domain data modeling as well. Um,
2: if, if I might, I would like to throw something in on top of what Bill is saying, which uh, just sort of uh, adds icing to that cake of ontologies. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a piece, How Will AI Learn Next? from the New Yorker by James Summers. And he sort of charts the past ten to fifteen years, particularly from Stack Overflow and other such sites where expert knowledge was gained because of you know the social network type um, effect that was involved there. And says that with GBT and also say like uh, Google Search and other such um, other such features on the net, in a way we're draining the net of expert knowledge, and that is. Unfortunately, also, though, what the chat GPT or other such uh, large language models are learning off of, so we're depleting it in a sense of knowledge because fewer people are going out to look or add anything because they're just taking what it is that the LLM gives back to them. And, and to make a long article very short, he, he, he comes to the conclusion that, well, if anything's going, and there's very, other, very many other uh, paths he follows in his article, but he says if there's going to be a future in this sort of um you know, tool that we can use and actually get intelligence out of it should be asking, so this would be going beyond the ontology. It should also be asking experts like himself, a software engineer, hey, what would you do in this particular case? you know, so an inherent curiosity in the learning of uh, the LLM, but this is absent as we know it now.
3: Can, can I add something to that um it's
2: getting very big the cake now
3: <laughs> yes, you' you've heard this before and of course we're you know theorists also but we're also practitioners so we're trying to figure out ourselves how we can harness these uh you know the chat GBT and and the other uh, the, uh, affordances that are there in in the digital world in our own classes because if we're not Trying that, then you know what's the point of just theorizing. So we actually have um, produced a corpus of our own. We have collected uh, in in uh, the corpus all everything we've ever written, everything our students have ever written, and put it in uh, uh, accessible to our students. And then our students are asked to perform particular tasks, and we ask them to go to the uh, ChatGBT and get a review from some feedback from the ChatGPT. But then we also have a, a human uh, a, a peer who also then uh, uh, reviews what the ChatGPT Chat GPT does. And then we get the recipient of the original text to reflect on what the processes were about and how they happened. But we keep feeding into the corpus works that we have produced and our students have produced. So it's constantly being fed, constantly being updated uh, in the domain that matters for our course. So in a sense, it doesn't have to be just, you know, like legacy things. And it won't, of course, uh, be legacy uh, texts and, and legacy artifacts. Uh, we ourselves have to think of ways in which we can uh, shape it in a way that is purposeful and meaning meaningful. And if we can get back to decision-making, where decisions are made by the uh, uh, subjects involved can be better decisions as a consequence of this, if I can call it curation and process.
1: Yeah, I think these are all excellent points. And I think to some extent, they are all connected, right? So I think both Bill and Dan was uh, sort of, touching on the notion of uh, sort of existing domain knowledge and how uh, these should consolidate or enhance uh, the existing uh, machine learning based approaches that seems to try to, you know, emulating a knowledge base. Um, Now, I think, you know, the ontology idea is something definitely relevant to the kind of, you know, logical reasoning layer on top of machine learning, in a sense that I I think it is about, you know, if there's a way for us to uh, control the higher layer of decision-making and treat the machine learning models as sort of very task-specific, domain-specific sensing or, uh, you know, agents. Uh, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, 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 recent works are trying to, you know, explore this idea uh, for more domain-specific tasks. Um, uh, in security in particular, uh, I-, I think there's a notion of a co-pilot, uh, meaning that uh, the uh, machine learning model are assigned to very domain-specific tasks. Of course, those model has to be specialized training, uh, but they don't do anything beyond what they train for. So uh, hopefully all they're doing is processing the log and produce some aggregate statistics. So for, as example, and then those outputs will be organized uh, with, uh, you know, as Bill mentioned, this sort kind of ontology or some kind of organization, uh, maybe crafted by human. Maybe it is a workflow uh, that humans will be involved in querying those uh, databases and, uh, you know, with AI help to get some answers back. Where the decision making was sort of jointly made by human and AI. Um, there's different a lot of promises there. Um, but I, but I think that um, just kind of a, another quick comment to, uh, to, to sort of Dan's point uh, that whether we were worried that those kind of uh, AI-based knowledge versus this kind of human-based knowledge would uh, uh, would push the human-based knowledge to saturate. Um, I, I think this is built... Uh, I, so I personally am not, not worried too much about it uh, because uh, that concern was built on the assumption, assumption that... These machine based intelligence or knowledge will be overwhelmingly dominating where humans were pushed to the corner and doing anything else. Um, I personally don't think that's the future. Um, uh, At the end of the day, I I, I think that um, the human intelligence would not go away just because the machine uh, learning gets better. Um, uh, uh, To be very honest, I think the state of the arts. Uh, I think Bill also mentioned a a couple of times that it doesn't seem that the machine has true intelligence at this stage. Uh, So a lot of them is uh, basically playing uh, over the overwhelmingly amount of data uh, to get something meaningful out of it. Um, So uh, I I think that's kind of my view that the saturation knowledge of humans won't be a big concern uh, uh, at this point uh, the, the kind of, um, the, 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 the paradigm I'm looking at is that human can take advantage of this machine ability to be able to extract something useful from a huge amount of data. Uh, just using the ChatGPT, for example, uh, I, Mary's example is super interesting that you have human and a machine to scrutinize each other's information and see if there's something new come out. Uh, we didn't do something similar in our own classes. We did something slightly different. We basically asked our students to use ChatGPT to solve a problems that we studied in the class. And then their task is to criticize the answers they got from ChatGPT. Uh, so I think this is to help the students realize that the ChatGPT are very useful to get some meaningful information out but they always found a little pieces of information here and there that it was not accurate, that was completely made up. And then uh, I think it helped a lot of her students to realize that uh, you, you cannot trust their answers 100%.
3: Right. Um, I was curious when you we used two words, I think it was for now or at this time age so are you anticipating in a mission impossible style that the future <laughs> that the future it's going to be different that um you know the this uh, kind of decision making and uh machine learning will get to another stage do, do you anticipate even in a science fiction way or in a realistic way
1: yes i i think i um you know I, I, the the, the idea here is that because of the development of these models are moving so fast, uh, it's become more and more difficult to predict the future. Uh, so as a concrete example, right? So uh, even it is sort of happening within our students um, and uh, you know, using a large language model to help with uh, programming tasks has been very, very uh, useful to improve the programmer's efficiency. Uh, our own students are using uh, sort of those kind of platforms to assist their programming. Of course, you know they cannot program, uh, uh, you know, completely, but they provide some kind of uh, sketches. Right, the students can build on top of. Uh, so I think in the future we're really looking at uh, you know interesting tasks that we can anticipate that a human and algorithm to collaborate uh, together. Um, even without the true intelligence, the fact that they can provide relevant information and in a uh, in on demand manner, uh, it's gonna be tremendously changing the way we work and study uh, and uh and, and a lot of other things that we're doing in our life.
2: But that that brings
0: gonna... us then to that uh oh sorry bill yeah please I, if I'm, gonna to make, I'm, I'm gonna make i'm gonna make a big sweeping statement now am i last <laughs> everybody, everybody <already. laughs> What you're actually, you're actually highlighting a deep problem with the notion of artificial intelligence and the deep problem is the illusion that we have that it can be in some senses a replicant of human intel- intelligence so Yang, the whole of your article is about these things need to be complementary. Well, the problem with the idea of artificial intelligence is the problem of artificial intelligence. And the, the concept, Mary and I've been working on is the idea of cyber social learning. This is a, a, a mutually beneficial learning relationship with two very different types of processes. One's a technology and one's a human. And the technology can be fantastically helpful in the learning process. It can help us learn as humans and it has capacities to learn itself right so um artificial intelligence is a really problematic idea and we've got to say yeah you, know, you know there's a, a very nice um uh, interview where <laughs> uh john mccarthy says oh, i just used this as a catchy phrase to get the funding for the seminar at dartmouth college in 55 or 56 whenever it was um yeah and it's yeah. a catchy phrase but it's also a very deceptive one so we like the idea, cyber social instead it's a relationship It's not a replicant.
3: And it sort of goes with what you write too, from what we've read, gang, that you you see that um, people are sort of talking about human machine now, uh, but we like to see it as social, not just human. As
2: a relationship. And maybe just to add in on top of that, also to sharpen a little bit of of, of what it is that uh, that Bill sweepingly given us there, <laughs> is, uh, is this this idea of learning because it brings us I I do think closer to this idea of right um, what a decision is right I mean you, you're you're enabled to new decision making you uh, learn through making decisions I mean intelligence is a sort of decision-making capability and so on. It's nice what you said there, Bill, about this idea that, yes, the side of social learning is the technology is helping us learn as humans, and that in itself is interesting, right, to learn as humans, but then the technology itself is learning. So, I mean, we can't clearly be talking about the same sort of learning. I mean, put it put, to put it bluntly, right, human learning, machine learning can't cover the same sorts of learning, but they must be crossover as well.
3: Right, right. And also a lot of the, now, a lot of the so-called learning that our students are bringing from chat GPT is kind of parroting, if that's the right word, (laughs) you know, there is, you know, not learning at all, just, you know, supplying uh, the course, whatever the course wanted from uh, the chat GPT without actually doing what scholars are supposed to do, like researching, synthesizing, you know, that kind of work. So, we do have to be mindful of uh, both the affordances and the challenges for us as educators, and what learning might still mean, uh, whether it's in computing science or education or history. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point um, because we start to see students uh, in our on our campus uh, yeah. embracing those tools, uh, yeah. and you know, in particularly in computer science, there's a lot of programming tasks, as I mentioned. Um, and it's uh, already impossible uh, to say, hey, students, you cannot use those tools. Uh, I think it is a more so of, for us educators to figure out, given those tools exist, how can we uh, show our students uh, the right way of learning uh, such that they can maximize their potential to build something really interesting?
3: And I think, I'd, and still I don't know if they have the right words, we actually need to build um, corpuses around specific tasks, you know, ourselves as educators, not just to leave it open, you know, whether it's in the fine-tuning, whether it's in the rubrics that we set up. Um, we we as educators be, need to be get skilled or more involved. I mean, it's a, a whole new domain for us. You know, we think it's like we're in a, a lolly shop you know, in a candy store and we're going to go, you know, kind of absorb all this candy and it's going to make everything easier to do. But it isn't quite like that and we are not actually prepared uh, for it yet. And a lot, like we've been working uh, gang with computer scientists now for uh, a number of years trying to find a common language, you know, uh, about how you, Create the algorithms, or how you interrogate the algorithms, or how you kind of shape the tools that we're working with. Uh, because uh, computing science and engineering has its own culture and manner of doing things that's speeding ahead. And those of us who are on about learning, you know, are trying to catch up or pretending it's not happening. So I do think we have uh, a conundrum in the academy writ large about how we engage these issues, both as theorists and as practitioners.
1: Yes,
2: uh, I completely agree. To get us back, and also at the at the risk of perhaps uh, uh, ruining the flow of, of the discussion, but to get us back to this idea of, of, of what decision means. I mean, from for what I've taken from a lot of uh, what I, I've heard Gang in particular say, but also from Bill and Mary, is that... You have on the one hand sort of strictly statistical decision-making in the ML, and as far as we can tell, without any purpose behind it. So it's not trying to do something, it's, 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 it's executing a program in a sense. And on the other hand, you have human decision-making, which will involve statistics, but it might be far simpler. Unless we're using a technology to support us, because if I think of statistics in the human brain, then I think of words like should, could, might, will, and so on. So, I mean, we've got, you know, a handful of modal verbs (laughs) which are going to tell us something about how likely something is. But then there's got to be a whole slew of other things that are influencing decisions on our part we can't name all of these i mean there's been all kinds of fantastic uh, scientists who have looked into this i mean daniel kahneman is just one name that comes to mind um, andy clark is another where we think uh, there's a lot of virtuality in our decision making and i mean then we start to think well hey <laughs> does this actually maybe have something to do with hallucination is this somewhat <laughs> chat gpt like <laughs> Again, I said all this at the risk of, of ruining the flow of the discussion, but there it is.
3: No, but it's important because, we're, you know, we're in a very interesting transi- is a transitional moment. I mean, all moments are transitional, but this seems more than ever uh, in the context of what universities do uh, and in the context of education. And it's not just universities that do education. So I think the conversations are important. And I'm so glad you brought us together. Uh, to have these across our different disciplines because we need more of this. So thank you.
2: Well, I have to say that I was also somewhat inspired by uh, Cormac Hurley, a name which Yang you'll probably know. He, he was on this program and uh, he himself actually encouraged uh, precisely what Mary is praising there, this interdisciplinary work on the technology of AI, because he even identified in you know the engineering community because of the fact that it's moving so fast and so successfully that a certain hubris where, you know, he would welcome that they opened their ears perhaps to work from, as you are doing right now at this moment, Gang, work from other fields and trying to figure out, okay, well, what are new perspectives that can complexify in good ways what it is that we're doing? Yeah, I I think that's a great point uh, that um,
1: we started, because it has started influence across different fields, uh, it's probably an excellent point, uh, a hub to bring the different fields together to do some interesting work together.
3: Yep. Yep. Um,
2: To close out, uh, we always, uh, Gang, just to give you a brief idea, uh, we always allow each person to sort of briefly state their takeaway. Perhaps it can be modelled for you by by Bill or Mary. If either of you would like to look back across our discussion and and, and give what you you take away from today, uh, should I start? But I was I was going to suggest Bill or Mary, maybe. Um, yeah. Oh, Bill, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, look,
0: uh, look I, I think my takeaway, and it it absolutely aligns with the paper you've recently published, there, Kang, is that um, um, that you know think of the uh, the, the the ungrammatical. Um, Uh, Apple advertisement, think different. Um, uh, I I think actually, um, you know, that to the extent that machine learning is a way to provide us data and think differently, it's a valuable thing. We just have to be aware of what its limitations are and always never make a judgment which isn't also based on a human judgment. So what it does, it kind of, it it supplements and complements human judgment. And Mary?
3: (laughs) Well, I was going to say something that Bill told me I wasn't to talk about, but a gang might be interested that we were involved in re- in research on uh, 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 cyber uh, security, right? Uh, our skills. Why? Because the domain wanted educators to come in and help them in uh, in the Sherman learning side of what... Uh, the security issues were and they had to do with it wasn't just about computing and capabilities and all those kinds of things it had to do with logistics and networks and human uh, kind of uh, issues and it was so hard to integrate that into a curriculum which is so crap crow- so crowded and the and the, this was from Congress, actually, the uh, the funding, and yet they themselves don't know what they want. They Congress itself, the, the highest power in our in this country, still doesn't know how to prepare uh, people uh, for the cybersecurity tasks uh, uh, in a way that's effective into the future, not into the past. <laughs> so um, it was wonderful to hear uh, your ideas uh, uh, gang and what you think still needs to be done because I think we, we're traveling in the same kind of path even though the paths has have haven't crossed in in uh, real time <laughs> in real places
1: <laughs> yeah I I, 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 I think that uh, you know uh, there's a, a lot to impact uh, from today's discussion you know uh, I just wanted to you know, echo one thing. I think a build mission is the the word relationship. Um, it, to to me, I think that you know, human uh, and humans, uh, and to the broader concept of a social uh, network of humans, are start to building a you know uh, unknown uh, and under exploration relationship with AI algorithms because C- they are in our life now. Uh, we are in our learning process. It is on campus. Uh, it is also in our society uh, when we do our tasks. Um, the very much open question is, uh, and given a good particular circumstance, um, how humans and algorithms uh, can better work with each other. Uh, and one of the uh, pressing question uh, to the decision making uh, topic that Dan was uh, kind of discussing, uh, in the beginning of the uh, conversation was uh, how do you provide the capability of communication and understanding? Um, I think a lot of decision making uh, comes from, uh, you know, even for humans is a kind of a, a, a small conversation within ourselves that maybe we are not a super, un, uh, super aware, but there is a communication and a discussion within our head uh, to make those decisions. Um, and uh, right now, uh, we have sort of a partner, uh, which is, uh, um, is a sort of a computer program uh, that has all kinds of limitations, uh, and it requires us human to be aware of those limitations uh, and to be able to make um, a effective communication with them uh, and hopefully come uh, up with better decisions uh, for different aspects of the task. Um, this is a, definitely an exciting time uh, because the uh, things are moving fast uh, on the algorithm side, uh, which kind of put some extra pressure uh, for us to figure out this human-computer interaction or human-algorithm uh, interaction paradigm. Um, but it, it's a really interesting time uh, to think about those problems now.
2: There's not much for me to add there. Um, you, you three have cov- covered it all. I, I think I would uh, just kind of follow up on what Gong was saying, indeed, that um, we need to see AI as another technology that may serve us. And therefore, since it's complex and since it's doing things that sort of separate it out from other um, technologies that we're used to, making it seem a bit more human-like than other technologies, right? It's very different from a car or even an airplane or even, you know, our normal computers. It's doing things that somehow, somewhat disturb us, um, all the more so we need to understand, yeah, decision-making, its decision-making, our decision-making, and so on, definitely. Well, my, my guests today on All We Mean were Gung Wang and Mary Callanzes and Bill Kolb all at the University of Illinois. I'm Daniel Shea signing out until next time here on All We Mean.